Welcome to the Speaking of Tangents podcast, season two. That's dose in another language for both your ears this time. This week's episode is once again sponsored by the Diane Kruger Effect. The Diane Kruger Effect Kickstarter has already met its goal. So we want to say thanks from all of us to all of you. And when I say sponsored by, I mean really just there's no money changing hands on this because I just be paying myself and neither side has any money. My name is Jason. And my name is KJ. And in this week's Week in Review, Jason and I recap our Thanksgiving holidays. But trust me, it is not without its tangents. Absolutely. That's basically all we do here is tangents. Anyway, up next, we'll talk with Mark Schaefer about his book, The Certainty of Uncertainty. You should really check it out. I mean, I have my copy right here, as you can see. Well, I mean, I, it's a podcast, so I guess you can't see it, but you can hear it. Listen to these pages. It's great. You should really get it. Seriously, check it out. And we'll wrap it all up with feedback. All that plus several conversational tangents. In a week, week. things happen. Yes, they do. And now we'll review. Yes, we will. Those things that happen. The things that happen. It's the speaking of tangents. Week in review. What's up this week? Good is up this week. Is good up for you, Jason? Um, germs and viri and bacterial infections and viri. <laughs> viri. <are> up. <laughs> Yeah. I don't think I've ever heard yeah. of virus. I, I just don't think I've ever heard it enunciated. I'm going viral, just in the wrong way. <laughs> well, that's too bad. I'm sorry. I, I um, knock on wood, have not gotten sick. And I thought I might with, you know, the Thanksgiving holiday being with family. <laughs> Wait. Not that my family are. <laughs> Wait. Not the, no, that came out wrong. <laughs> that was some shade right there. I'm getting sick of you, family. <laughs> yes. Uh, well, speaking of Thanksgiving, how was yours? I was sick. We stayed at home. I was in the bed or oh, you didn't sitting around anywhere? the couch. No, I was I literally oh. either me or my son or my daughter were sick the entire, they were off the entire week for Thanksgiving from school. So my son got sick that Sunday, was sick for two or three days, so we couldn't go anywhere for Thanksgiving. I was sick from Wednesday through still was really bad earlier this week. Yep. And finally starting to get through it now and trying to get my voice back and stuff. But like stomach virus, uh, flu symptoms, bad colds. I think I've been through two separate colds at least in the past week and a half. Viri. Viri. I think I would say viri. I'm going viri. It's more than just one viral. I'm I'm multiple viral. I'm viri. So did you... Get any type of Thanksgiving meal, or were you too sick to enjoy such a thing? Uh, Jason's wife made some uh, impromptu, uh, did a good job of Thanksgiving stuff, because that's like her favorite meal to eat. Yeah, and like, me too, I think, Jason's uh, wife. A lot of people <laughs> feel yeah. that way. Um, so we did get some of that, but like no turkey or anything like that, and I don't care about that anyway. Yeah, the turkey What'd to me is just second rate compared to, of course, the, the stuffing. Um, yeah, besides getting sick of your family, I mean, that you've already said, yeah. that I just wanted to reiterate that you want to tell them that you're sick of them. Yes. What else did you do for Thanksgiving? Well, we traveled north to Duluth. 
And then I say north so you don't get confused and think we traveled to Duluth, Georgia, which would actually be south from here. So to eliminate the confusion, I went to Duluth, north Minnesota, not to Duluth, uh, well, Georgia. You could get to Duluth, Georgia from Minnesota by going north. You just have to go way north. You could yeah, keep that's going. right. You could you get to, there. If you keep going, you'll eventually get there. Yeah. So we went to uh, the Hall of Famer's sister and brother-in-law, uh, the Curlers. The Curlers. We went to their house. Um, that's not their last name. You're talking about the... The sport. Or yes. Th- yeah, the sport. There were 16 people, people there and seven dogs. That's a high dog per person ratio. Uh-huh. And one, uh, the Hall of Famer's parents left their dog at home. So it would have been a perfect ratio of two adults to one dog if they would have brought their dog, but they didn't. Well, let's see. Perfect. If you talk perfect ratio, the golden ratio is 1.6180. So you were actually closer to it with the amount of dogs and people that were there than a two to one. Well, actually, the perfect ratio to me would be two to one dogs, two dogs per one person. Okay. <laughs> um, I mean, you, you just bring up perfect and you have to get the golden ratio factored in there. Uh, something that I didn't think I knew before. Okay. So, dropping knowledge amongst the Virai. Yes. Um, so it was I'm the Virai Codex. So we had a gr- we had a great meal and then we came home the next day and my parents from Iowa met us here at our house and then we had another Thanksgiving meal on Saturday. They sp- spent the weekend with us. So you doubled Thanksgiving. We doubled Thanksgiving and mm. I tripled the stuffing recipe. As in you made it three times or you made thrice as much? Thrice as much. Oh, okay. And the only other thing that happened was we have a mouse in the house now. And, of course, the first thing I did was accuse my parents of somehow bringing the mouse in with their luggage. And then we caught the mouse, so we're good. We have not had a reoccurrence. Maybe he just wanted some stuffing. He might or have. Or she. I don't, I, don't, I don't want to gender that mouse. We've never, ever had a mouse in the house, so... Uh, we noticed that there had been that it ate a hole in a banana, mm. and um, so I asked my mom, "Did you bring a mouse in your luggage?" You did not. <laughs> yeah, I did. I, I I had to because it was so coincidental. Or is it QE that they showed up and a mouse came? That sounds coincidental to me. We've never had it's, one. It's how the universe works. Yeah. So anyway, they they do not think that they brought a mouse in with their luggage. And I'm sure they didn't, but we, we've caught the mouse, so all is good. You seem good skeptical of this. Good you literally up. seem like you think they actually might have. No, because how would that work? Wouldn't a mouse... I don't know, but you said they don't seem to think, and, you know, they are skeptical of it. And I'm like, oh. you're the one who is very much not yet said... <laughs> They definitely didn't bring a mouse to your house in their luggage, I think, which makes less sense than, I mean, okay, let's look at this from a reasonable, yes. logical standpoint. Did a mouse crawl into a suitcase in their house without <laughs> them noticing in Iowa and live in the suitcase and not get out into their vehicle mm-hmm. from the entire trip? What is it, like five hours, four hours? Three hours and 15 Three minutes. hours. So three hours and 15 minutes, this mouse is just chilling in the luggage going, I'm going to get me some of that triple stuffing Yes, at where we're going because it somehow knows where, you're, where they're driving it. Look, that and, mouse ain't no dummy. He knows about well, my yeah. stuffing. Well, if you caught him, he's not too smart. That's true. Um, no. So, I, but I the think other side un- of this is the mouse came from a field 
in your 40 acres. <laughs> Six acres. Natural wood, wooded field area. Yep. Where, you know, like, um, what's the name for that mouse? Um, what are my, uh, oh, a field mouse. Field mouse. Field mice. So um, where would a field mice live? Is it more likely in a suitcase in Iowa or in a field? <laughs> um, I mean, just asking questions. It, That's what I'm doing. I'm sure that there are no, I mean, the one way to solve that was to look through their luggage and see if there are droppings because there's no way it could go three hours without dropping probably. Probably. Um, so did you do that? No. What I, was the result of that? We didn't notice the mouse until they left. Oh, so did you? <laughs> and so I wrote her. Are you email. saying if you would have noticed it beforehand, <laughs> yeah. you would have done like TSA level yes. body scan pat downs? Oh, absolutely. Body cavity search on your. <laughs> <laughs> My parents, yeah. I mentioned this. I wrote them the email in jest, um, but it's scathing. I'm assuming it's in tur- It's turned into you know this fun little thing that maybe they did bring a mouse in the house. But you know what? Probably the most likely, there's two likely scenarios. One, there's a hole somewhere all of a sudden in the house and the mouse is getting in. Or B, the garage door was left open a little too long and a mouse scattered in amongst our feet, which I don't think is possible either. They're too scared. Mm -hmm. So really, where the mouse came from is a mystery. And we only had one. We haven't caught any more. We 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 have I mean, them in is our it garage. Multiple mice. I think I think that's more like cockroaches. I think. Right. Oh wait a minute. Wait. Did you wait? We have mice wait, in wait. our garage. Wait. <laughs> is the garage attached to the house? Is it yes. attached to garage? Yes. Oh well, I I'm still gonna go with it came in a suitcase from Iowa. Yeah, I'm going with that sense. too. So yeah. there we go. Um. So that's all <laughs> that happened this week. I ate a lot, and uh, you know we. Dis- dispensed of some mice mm-hmm. and accused your parents of yes. infesting your abode with vermin yeah, and we also we also accused them of taking they need our- to be prosecuted to the fullest extent of the law it's it's inter they cross state lines with that vermin that you know that's that's got to be some yes. laws broken there federal law it's like where's the, the fbi um, what's the beetle that's what's the beetle that you're not allowed to transport japanese beetle i don't think it's, well, yeah it beetle. might be that you're not allowed to transport firewood from state to state it's like that you're not allowed what? You're not allowed to trans you're not supposed to transport firewood like if you're going camping or something. You're not supposed to if you have for instance uh, I have firewood here. We of course we have a ring. We have a fire ring at our mansion. And a ring of fire. Yeah, a ring of fire and we have firewood. So it it would make sense that we would want to bundle up our firewood and take it instead of paying $6 for a bundle in Wisconsin, if we're going camping there, but you're not allowed to transport firewood. Paying for firewood? Yes. When you go camping, yes. You cut down a tree. Yeah. I can tell you haven't camped for a while. Well, I mean, I did actual camping and not, you know, this highfalutin Tenton. fancy pants camping. Yeah, with Wi-Fi, internet, and showers and stuff. Yeah, no, no. Yeah. yeah. Wait a minute. That's camping now? Well, Maybe I should go camping. Yep. There are camping sites that... Oh, they have all the amenities now. So so you're not allowed, get back to what you're saying, you're not allowed to take firewood from one state to the other. Mm-hmm. Do the trees know not to go grow over the state line or they're going to get arrested? Trees are smart. That's ridiculous. Yeah. I know, but that, that's because of the beetle. The only thing I know about this is the episode of The Simpsons where Bart takes frogs to Australia. I'm not have familiar that with one? that episode. And he gets arrested. Uh-uh. And Homer's saluting the toilets in the U.S. Embassy there in Australia because they've put in 
this superly super over elaborate ridiculous mechanism to make the toilet the water in the toilet spin the same way as it does in america because <laughs> it's different hemisphere. yeah yeah no yeah, I but the earth is that. flat though so yes right yeah so that's all i know about taking you know pests or you know things that wouldn't that are you know indigenous to one area some sort of animal or plant life and taking it or insect and taking it to another area that it would infect and you know infest infest not infect and you know destroy other habitats of other animals that you know naturally occur there well I, everything i know i learned from the simpsons <laughs> that's not that's actually not a bad thing they they they've would, had it actually a, would be you could yes. you, you could glean a lot of information just <laughs> yes, from watching the could. simpsons so that's it and we also accuse them of stealing our bananas so you know we've we were just thanksgiving thank you for everything we love our family i'm thankful for this i'm thankful <laughs> again for that. did you steal where is the my fbi <laughs> yeah where is the fbi you've got multi-time criminals <laughs> yeah. fleeing across state lines transporting vermin <laughs> across state lines theft yep. they should be in prison yep why do all the why do all the good people go to jail <laughs> and the criminals get off <laughs> Fantastic Justice. question. What a Thanksgiving. Yeah. Do we have a guest on the show this week? Answer no or yes, it's a binary thing. Do we have a guest? Do we have a guest? Answer no or yes. Well, yes, we do have a guest. We're excited to have Reverend Mark Schaefer here with us today. Mark is the university chaplain and director of K Spiritual Life Center at American University in Washington, D.C. He's also an adjunct professor at both American University and Wesley Theological Seminary. And Wesley is also where he received his Master of Divinity degree. In addition to that degree, he also holds a law degree from George Washington University Law School and a BA and MA in Russian Language and Literature from the State University of New York, University at Albany. Wow, that's a lot of degrees. Obviously, he's a very smart man, and he's written a very interesting book that I hope you'll all consider reading called The Certainty of Uncertainty, and he's here today to talk about that book, and Oreos, of course. He was an absolute delight, and we hope you'll enjoy. Here's Mark Schaefer. Well, welcome, Mark, or, or is, should I say Reverend Mark, Reverend Schaefer? What, do you, what should we call you? I, you can call me whatever you like to call me. I answer to anything. So Mark is just fine. Okay. Well, thanks. Dan. For... I'm calling you Dan. Dan. <laughs> you can call me Dan. There may be a slight lag as I, it takes me a while to realize that it's me you're talking to. Fair point. Good job. Um, thanks for coming, coming on with us and congratulations on the book. Thank you. I'm really yes. happy to be here. How long has it been out now? Has it been a couple months? Uh, it came out at the end of August, so it's been out, yeah, I guess a couple, three months. Okay, so why don't you just tell us a little bit about it? What what kind of, what made you decide to write it? How long did it take you to research and write it? Um, we already mentioned that it's called The Certainty of Uncertainty, but but um, go for it. Tell us a little, give us your little blurb. Sure. So it's a book that was really the response to um, something that I'd experienced um in my ministry. At the time, I was serving here at American as the United Methodist chaplain and was conducting regular services every week and that kind of thing. And we had a, a sermon series or a sermon that I would do every Super Bowl Sunday. It was kind of a gimmick to get people to come to church on Super Bowl <laughs> Sunday because um, our services were always late in the afternoon. 
and it was a question and answer sermon. And the, the gimmick was that I didn't know what the questions were in advance. The students would ask them of me and I would have to answer them off the top of my head. And one year we decided to do a sermon series in which we, uh, I preached a sermon on some of the more commonly encountered questions that we would get from those question and answer sermons. And the question of, am I lost if I have doubt, was one of the ones that kept resurfacing. So I preached a sermon on that, and it went over really well. And I used it a couple of different times in a couple of different locations. And everywhere I preached it, people responded responded to it really strongly. And so when I got the opportunity in the fall of 2015 to go away on sabbatical, I wanted to use the opportunity to write something. And I thought, well, then this is the topic I need to write about. I need to write about the intersection of faith and doubt and and uh, meaning and metaphor and all these kinds of things that I've been thinking about. Mm-hmm. And so ultimately what I wanted to do is write a book for two kinds of people, for the people who are um, struggling to maintain their certainties in their beliefs, but are really struggling at it. That is, they're, they're pushing away anything that challenges what they already believe, or they're kind of, you know, sitting with their fingers in their ears, you know, sort of shutting out anything else. Um, but that it's a really kind of fragile endeavor that they're engaged in on the one hand. And then on the other hand, the people who are, are acknowledging that they have doubt, but feel that they're somehow failing because they're doing that, that they're doing something wrong because they're doubting. And so what I wanted to do in the book and what I wound up doing was asking the question of why it is we want that kind of certainty. Can we actually get that kind of certainty? And then given that we can't, spoilers, um, what, what do we do with that? And, and so, I, uh, so the book actually exists to help people come to terms with the fact that we live in an uncertain world, and even the things we rely on for certainty aren't that certain themselves, but that all of that is okay, that that actually offers us a more meaningful life and a more meaningful experience when we realize that we're making choices in spite of the uncertainty, sort of, or despite it, that we are actually then living a little more boldly than if we were just re- merely relying on absolute certainties. Right. Yeah, it sort of gives you the permission to doubt for those that, you, like you were saying, those two, actually those two camps of people that you were. Right, right. For the, for the people who are struggling to maintain a certainty, it basically mm-hmm. says, it's okay, you, you can let go and you'll mm-hmm. be fine. And for the people who are really struggling to to find certainty you can say it's all right you can let go of that quest you're where you are is actually okay where you are is actually a good place to be and so there was there's a lot of information in this book so i'm interested in the research part of this how long that did that take you said it was during sabbatical in 2015 that you started to write this yeah i had probably had had some sketches, some basic outline that summer. And then I went away September 1, 2015. And I spent pretty much the bulk of that semester researching and writing. Um, and, 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 and you're right about the, the amount of information is there because I wanted the book to be taken seriously, not mm-hmm. just as a kind of devotional book of nice sort of sentiments and things, you know. And I didn't want it to be a book about religion for religious people. I wanted it to be a book for everyone that anyone could enjoy and anyone could get something from. So what that meant was I had to do a lot of research to to 
talk about the questions of language sure. and science and philosophy yeah. and all those kinds of things. Oh, um, I can appreciate that. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it took me, I, th- I think I got my first draft sometime in December after about three months of solid just researching and writing. And then I spent the next several months reworking that draft over and over and over again. And then probably while I was looking for a publisher, probably reworked it yet another four or five times before the whole thing was done. Wow, that's that's a lot of work, isn't it? It is, yeah. And so I was really psyched when I got I an offer from a publisher, yeah. <laughs> and so this was not something that you could sort of roll into your job as chaplain at the American University. Shout out David Aldridge. <laughs> that's right. Um, you, this is something you had to do on your, well, during your sabbatical, but it wasn't something that you could just roll into your other job. Well, I suppose, so at the time I was um, I was the Methodist chaplain, and then about a semester after I came back, my predecessor as university chaplain retired, and I was appointed to take his place. Um, oh, okay. I, I probably could have done it as part of my work. I think mm-hmm. it actually fits into my job description. The sure. question is, would I have had the time? I think right. that was the, the biggest thing, was the gift of that sabbatical leave in order to just simply have the time to research, to write, to reflect, um, that made all the difference in the world. I mean, I, my colleagues keep saying to me, how did you write a book? You know, and I said, you know, I had a sabbatical. That's how yeah. I wrote the book. Yes. And, and then, then they feel a little better about themselves, you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, now, I read the book. and Thank you, by the way. And I really enjoyed it. And one of the things I gathered, and correct me if I'm wrong, please, but and you kind of already mentioned this a little bit, it seemed to me that you organized the book into three major categories or, or sections of uncertainty, that being religious tradition, language, and science. Yes. And then you kind of break down each category individually as you write the book. Right. Um, but throughout the book, and not just in the language section, as we might expect, you talk a lot about metaphors. So I guess this is kind of a two-part question. For, I'll give you the first part first, which makes sense. Sure. Um, what made you focus on metaphors? Well, I think uh, part of it was just the realization early on that so much of religious language was metaphor um, mm-hmm. and that there's an inherent uncertainty in a metaphor, that a metaphor is pointing you in the direction of a thing, but it's not actually claiming to be that thing, um, while at the same time is not entirely irrelevant to the thing. That is, the metaphor occupies this really interesting middle ground of both being the thing it's describing and not being the thing it's describing. And Mm. what I began to realize was just how much of religious language was metaphorical. I'd also, you know, spent a fair amount of time reading, uh, you know, I I love language, so I'm a huge language nerd that way, and I've read a ton of books on language. And one of the more interesting treatments on language that I saw was a, a, an unpacking of just how metaphorical ordinary human speech is. Um, and so as I began to reflect on, well, how would I write this book and what kind of would be the, the thing that would bind it all together, the concept of metaphor rose to the top as something that speaks both to the language piece and to the religion piece and brings them together um, in a way that kind of becomes a unifying theme of the book. And it's not lost on me that you just said bind it all together when talking about your book. Which, right, which uh, is a metaphor, right? Yes, that, exactly. Right, so, right, exactly. <laughs> okay, so part two, and with, <laughs> within the context, I guess, of heaven and hell, but 
probably most I'm mostly heaven with this part of the question. And you you mentioned that the English word heaven, along with I think it was a Hebrew and a Greek word that I'm not even gonna try to pronounce, <laughs> that those three all of those three words just mean sky in their languages. That's right. And then you go on to list the this metaphor, which I would be extremely remiss to <laughs> if I did not mention in in you know in the in association with this podcast. Um, and you talked about it as it relates to the concept of sky being God's home or God's natural dwelling place. And that metaphor is good is up. Right. So I think, does this mean that our tagline for this podcast, not tagline, but salutation, should I say, Jason, good is up. Is that, is our podcast maybe a holy thing? Is that, is that, <laughs> is that a conclusion that I can draw? Sure. Um, I, I think now, I think you guys use it in a slightly different way, right? You mean that sort of good things are on the rise when you say good is up, right? Or yes, it's a slightly yeah. different way. Yeah, right. It's but, a it's a, it's a reworking of something my seven year old says. Yes. Okay. But the but the thing is, even that when you say good things are on the rise, that's understood as a positive thing, right? The fact that right. things are going up means that yeah. they are good, right? So it mm-hmm. so even. Even um, that understanding of what good is up is expressing embodies the other metaphor of good being up. That is, what you want is for things to be up. You don't want them to be down, right? So, right. Uh, so yeah, absolutely. So in, in as much as you are seeking to celebrate the good, you are also then celebrating the holy. Yes. So, and it might show that Jason's seven-year-old daughter is wise beyond her years. Maybe. Most seven-year-olds, you know, have that capacity for that kind of wisdom. You know, every once in a while, they say things that you just kind of think, where did that come from? Yeah. I feel like children are more wise before the world gets a hold of them and kind of clamps down on that. Because they mm-hmm. still have an appreciation of wonder, I think. And that's, Correct. that's why. Correct. Yes. Right. awe and mystery. Right. And exactly. Yep. To, add, to add to this, I will say I believe that everything that you do is sacred. People like to divide sacred and secular and if you uh, any, anything could be either on either side of that and to say that there's a d- definitive line between those things of like okay this thing is sacred because of or holy because of this and this is not sacred or not holy because of it's in this category i think mm-hmm. is mm-hmm. probably not the best way to go yeah no i absolutely agree and in, in fact i have this other self published book that i did a few years ago um, in which I make that exact case that what makes cool. something sacred, what makes something a sacrament is, is what you vest it with rather than what you're actually doing. That, you know, Absolutely. Yes. that things can be sacramental and holy that aren't approved sacraments, you know, that you can't right. find holiness in the ordinary. I absolutely believe that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what is that book? Do you want to plug that self-published <laughs> book? So is this your second book? So this, well, this is, I still think of this as my first because this is the first one that I got an actual publisher to commit money and resources to publishing. (laughs) I I think that's an important distinction because, um, uh, so the other one was, uh, it was a writing project that I um, engaged in a few years ago. It's called Religious Not Spiritual. And basically it argues for a more material understanding of what spirituality is, that I think it's Hmm. that spirituality properly understood, at least in my opinion, is grounded in the material, that it's not an otherworldly pie-in-the-sky, by-and-by kind of thing, but it's actually about real things in the here and now. It's about relationship. It's about justice. It's about, you know, right. 
all that kind of thing here. So so that's why, Jason, your point, I'm totally with you on. I think that's actually where holiness is more likely to be experienced profoundly is in the ordinary rather than in the transcendent. Mm-hmm. Right. I feel like a lot of people at times are looking for miracles and looking for like God to show up and prove himself or herself or um, however you want themselves right. to people. And I feel like from my perspective, just saying what I believe is that God is going, um, I've given you all this right in front of you that is happens every day. Open your eyes and look at it. And God works through things that are material like that. And it's not always some mystical. And believe me, I believe in plenty of mystery and uncertainty. And I have a couple of questions that I want to get to about your book that I, I read it as well and enjoyed it. But like the just the God works in ways that are mysterious, but God also works through people and relationships and things that are material in our world every single day. I mean, if you believe the way that I believe, then God created everything anyway, or however, however you want to look at that. Right. The way that God works is through those things that he created. It's that it's not always some, you know spiritual as we tend to believe and have and connotated from from the from being things things that we call spiritual it's not always just some you know mystical thing that we can't explain and understand even though it is but a lot of times god shows up in things that are everyday things yeah i i that's exactly right in my understanding i mean um when i was the methodist chaplain in our methodist services that we had a, a ritual we called god sightings where we invited people mm. to share every week where they had seen god in their lives and there was this one student kathleen every week she had a god sighting but they were things like you know um they were things like you know the animals that she'd worked with at the zoo in her internship and you know the the yep. stranger on the subway who yielded a seat and you know so it was all mm-hmm. these minor things that you could just say, oh, that was interesting. That was a nice little coincidence or whatever. But she saw them as miraculous and she saw them as a kind of presence of the divine in the world. And that made them that, you know. And so I think that's yes. the thing. It's like, yeah, I, I, you know, I don't blame the atheist for not accepting that. But what I that's but what it is, is it's a framing. It's a kind of you can choose to see the world yep. in these in these ways. And I think people are missing out who are only ascribing to the spiritual those otherworldly things when there is a whole host of evidence right in front of you of the ordinary miraculous and mm-hmm. the ordinary spiritual. That's exactly mm-hmm. right. It's kind of like we joke about QE in coincidence. And right. Oh, what a that, coincidence. That, that, that was my next question. That was my next question. Yeah. yeah. Well, actually, I have to shout out to Luke Overby, stat young man who, or young stat man. Who young stats. Tw- young stats. He tweeted me a that excerpt of good is up from your bookmark before I yeah. read it. And um, I thought to myself, Oh, what a great example of QE. And then that Luke then gave me an idea for one of the questions. And he said, basically, what is QE? Now you bring up science in your book and you bring up not only just science, but physics and quantum physics. Right now, what to you, what is quantum entanglement as it relates to coincidence? Or as it might not relate to coincidence. <laughs> so it's that's interesting. I have um, a colleague who was um, he was one of the pastors at the church I was a member of when I went into seminary, and he was uh, an ordained United Methodist pastor and a biophysicist who worked for the Smithsonian. Wow! And and he used to say so he would spend a lot of time on the intersection of faith and science, 
Um, but he would argue that quantum mechanics was God's back door into the universe, that it was, <laughs> that it was God's sort of back door into the system to provide the miraculous, that basically both the quantum uncertainty and the quantum entanglement and all of that were a mechanism written into the system that allowed for the very kind of um, supernatural, you know, so to speak, but it's yep. actually not supernatural. It's actually the yep. natural um, phenomena that we might um, experience. So I always thought that was a kind of really interesting way of looking at it. Definitely. Um, mm-hmm. Is that, and that's, and, and again, that comes back to my point in the book is that the entire system in which we're operating is this weird, uncertain, and entangled, and you know, system? Yes. It's like so. Where yeah. in this are you finding this sort of predictability and you know, absolute lockstep? Like we've got this all figured out mentality. Mm-hmm. This How can entire, you be definitive? Yeah, exactly. The entire system is written in this in this weird code that does these strange things to us. So, yeah. The amazing thing to me about it is. Every time we feel like, oh, we've got we've gotten to the bottom of this, or we've discovered, you know, the core of this, there's always something more. Yes, and yeah. that to me is the key to this is is the pointing at you're never going to 100 percent be for certain no proof, you know, mathematical proof the answer. You just got to go with this. Sometimes you just have to have the faith or the belief or whatever you want to call it um, to just to just go and experience it. And uh, it's it's because there's always going to be more, always. Right. And, and that was one of the interesting things in the science section in the part on what science even is doing and what it's right. even claiming to do is that the mm-hmm. scientists themselves don't claim that they're establishing certainties. In, <laughs> yeah, that's exactly right. right. Yeah. You know, in their mind, they're giving you the best, you know, formulation that helps to explain what you're observing. But yeah, it could be a hundred years from now, we might have a different explanation, but that's all fine. And that, in fact, Absolutely. their colleagues are down the hallway trying to prove them wrong as to what they just did, that the entire enterprise revolves around challenging what you think you know and going deeper. Yes, um, always asking questions. Right. Mm-hmm. Always. And, and that's the fact that a lot of people on both sides of this, the I, I say sides just because of what I'm about to say. I don't think it's different sides. I think science and faith go together. And the, the, a lot of the fact that people like to divide that and say, okay, you believe in science, so you have no faith, or you believe in faith, so you have no science. And it's, it's, they work together. And I feel like there are more people on each side who are trying to say, hey, this goes together. It's just we hear a lot from, it's it's like in any group. We hear a lot from the vocal minority a lot of the people on the extreme ends are like well if you don't believe this you know if, if you believe in science you can't believe in god and that kind of stuff when it all goes together i i agree and that that one section in the book about how uh, militant atheists and religious fundamentalists actually yes. have the same view of religion is speaks yeah. to exactly that <laughs> yeah i wrote that down as a question i found that very curious and interesting when i was reading that yeah i mean because what they they're inclined to see the enterprise of faith and the enterprise of science is contradictory. Mm-hmm. And uh, what that means is, in my thinking, is that they have an incorrect understanding of both of those things. It's um, <laughs> 100%. <laughs> yeah. Because if you look, there is nothing in religious faith that requires you to turn off your brain and to not accept empirical evidence. In fact, I, I think they're answering different questions. But I think, you know, 
it's the need for certainty that drives us to try to to box these things into something smaller than they're meant to be, and then we don't see any overlap between them. Um, right. But some of the you know some of my good friends are very faithful people of faith who are also scientists, you know, and and they don't see the contradiction. In fact, they seem to find more wonder in, for both realms, you know, when they when they wed them together. Um, and I also think they're answering different questions. You know, if you're looking to the Bible as your geology text, then sure, it's going to come into conflict with what you might learn in an actual <laughs> geology class. But yes. if you're looking, if you're looking to it as a record of a people's experience with the divine and the language that they use to encapsulate that experience and both the metaphor, but also even the symbol universe, right? If the ancients mm-hmm. thought the world was flat, well, then of course they're going to describe a flat world as God's domain. If we were to mm-hmm. write the book of Genesis today, we would write it starting with the Big Bang. And we could just, we both be equally as wrong about how all this stuff works. That's but, correct. Yes. Yeah, like you said, right. in 100 years, things could be, could be completely different. Right. But the point of our writing, it would not be to chronicle the very mechanism by which the universe came into being. It would be to say something about the God we think is lying behind it all. And that's yes. the the task, right? That's what religion is supposed to be doing is giving a reflection on the meaning and the purpose and the, the you know, the, the why of it all, um, which has nothing to do with the how, you know, the how it can be its own thing and we can be totally comfortable with that. Yes. And can be completely complementary with each other. Exactly. One thing, Mark, that I really appreciated that you, how you wrote this book, you wrote it in a way that someone like me, who is not a theologian, not a scientist, not a physicist, um, not a language expert, could easily understand. And one of the ways that I think you did that was to bring in pop culture references, movies, TVs, um, some music, books. And so then I went and wrote them down as I was reading. And mm-hmm. you, you referenced Monty Python, The Hitchhiker's yeah. Guide to the Galaxy, Zoolander, Curb Your Enthusiasm, Star Trek, Airplane, The Naked Gun, Guardians of the Galaxy. I could go on. Um, Battlestar Galactica. That's Bat- a big one. Battlestar Star- Galactica, Lost, yep. uh, okay, Annie David, Hall. Was that your top three cultural references you used? <laughs> um, well, that was my question for Mark. And, and even the Game of Thrones books. Now, I don't know if you've watched the Game of Thrones on HBO or you've just read yeah. the books. No, I both, yeah. But it was... Not only appreciated that, you know, that was a way that someone like me could kind of understand, put my arms around some of the concepts, but it was also obvious that you're a big fan of TV and movies. So I'm wondering, yes, what is your favorite movie or TV show of all time or maybe a top three or 27? So, um... (laughs) So I think in terms of TV of all time, I, I just got to come out and it's just, it's the original series Star Trek. I mean, that's just <laughs> okay. kind of, you know, yeah. that that's where I found my uh, love of science fiction as a kid watching those reruns in the early and mid 70s. And um, and so and that's really informed a lot of, you know, my own um, thinking about what science fiction is and what it's for and those kinds of things. Um I'm, but I'm a huge fan of The Expanse. I don't know if you guys are watching that. That's oh yes, um, I, no, that I think is some of the most compelling, not just science fiction, but television that I've seen in a while. Um, I'm really enjoying that and reading the books as well. Um, in terms of other things, oh, boy, my favorite movies. Um, it's hard question. It's I a think. hard question. I think I, I think my favorite movie of all time is probably Glory. 
Um, that you know the the Civil War movie with Matthew Broderick Denzel and Denzel Washington, Washington yeah. and Morgan Freeman and Andre Brower. Yeah, I think oh, yeah. that's probably. Oh, I haven't seen that one. Oh, that's it's incredible! One. It's a, the story of the 54th Massachusetts. It was the first black regiment in the Civil War in the Union Army, oh. and mm-hmm. um, it's it's a really powerful story. And uh, I think there's something that speaks to me on a lot of different levels about that story. Um, and so I think that's probably up in my favorite. Um, but, you know, it's funny because, like, you know, I like, you know, epics, like things like, you know, Lawrence of Arabia is amazing. But I also, you know, I, I enjoy the Fast and the Furious movies. So, you know, it's now it's, we're talking, you know, I mean, because honestly, those movies are exceptionally well made. Like you can't yes. you watch them and you think this movie is ridiculous. You know, they're Absolutely. driving cars yeah. into uh-huh. airplanes off of cliffs like it's ridiculous. Yeah. But they're doing that ridiculousness very, very well. So I just appreciate the aesthetic of that. And I, and one of the things I, I think, KJ, to your point, I, I wanted this to be a book that ordinary people could understand because mm-hmm. I think there is merit in the ordinary, right? So mm-hmm. I don't, I didn't want to write, uh, you know, a highfalutin book for theologians. That mm-hmm. you know, I wanted to write a book that everyone could understand, and. Um, and so I, I'm very, very gratified to hear you say that because I spent a lot of time not just in finding the illustrations, but in tempering the language to try to make it accessible, to try to ask myself when I'd read every sentence, does this make sense to someone who doesn't already know what you're talking about? You know, to look right. at the verbs I'm using, to look at. So I don't run away from the big seminary words, but I just never introduce them without saying what they actually mean. You know, I right. think that's an important thing so that you know you can simultaneously give someone new information without talking over their heads so i that's an important thing to me i i think relatability and and speaking to people where they are is really important so i'm gratified to hear you say that because my my big fear was that people would go i i don't get it i don't get what you're trying to say here um and so yeah and one of the things also is that just by you know, it, it, using the pop culture things. I mean, they make things more understandable to me. That Zoolander mm-hmm. illustration, I think, is like the perfect <laughs> illustration of you know mistaking a model for the real thing. I mean, yeah. you know, yeah. if you can find me a better illustration of that phenomenon, I you know go for it. But I don't think there is one because it's perfectly sublime and ridiculous at the same time. Yeah, that, I, I definitely I totally think you accomplished that goal. Well, thank yes. you. Yep. And and to be and and to be completely honest, the the. The line from Battlestar Galactica, the um, yes, the where Adama and Boomer are having a conversation, and Boomer says, "You know, how do you know you can trust me?" And Adama says, "I don't. That's what trust is." Mm-hmm. I remember watching that show, and I immediately—I think I was getting them on Netflix DVDs or something—and I like paused the the, the playback and just <laughs> sat there and thought, "Oh my God, that's phenomenal!" Right? So, <laughs> I mean, so in my own life and experience, I've gotten insight from ordinary things right so to me it makes perfect sense to then use those same mechanisms to try to communicate things to other people so in that that battlestar galactica reference i knew as soon as i heard it i'm like that one is a keeper i am like that you know i'm dragging that out at every possible opportunity (laughs) and to me that's the reason why a lot of jesus taught in parables and the bible has written a lot of stories and a lot of metaphors used and a lot of um allusions and allegories because that's how people learn best and exactly mm-hmm. what you're saying there about that stuff shows up everywhere all the time and everything that's around us and you writing it that way 
I think definitely is easier to connect to than I've read quite a few theology books and sometimes I'll get a couple chapters into them and go, you know, I know what you're saying here, but it is so you're trying to be convoluted on purpose to sound right. like you said highfalutin, and I'm right. like, I'm not into that. No, I'm, I, I'm, not, I'm not here for that. I got other, t- I got, I got, I don't have enough time to waste on that. It would be right. an interesting juxtaposition in anyway if you're writing a book <laughs> about uncertainty to speak in a language that is so certain. <laughs> Right. Right. There you go. Completely undermining your point. Yeah. yeah. Um, yes. I have to go back to the movies. One question about the movies, because I know that you are a Red Sox fan and yes. your team won the World Series. Congratulations. Thank you. Um, but where do you stand? Where do you what do you Is think this of hockey we're talking about? Yeah, hockey. Um, where are you on fever pitch? <laughs> so- oh, no. <laughs> uh-uh. I love fever I- pitch. It's dumb, but I love it. You know, if Fever Pitch is it's a it's a rom com masquerading as a sports movie, which yes. is fine. Yeah. You know, I mean, like that's the thing is like for what it's doing, it's yes. fine. It's not Pride of the Yankees, <laughs> you know. It's not the natural, but yeah, it's not right. trying to be those things. Uh-huh. It's, you know, it's not even Major League. But again, you know, and it's not Major League is another on my list, by the way, because it's probably one of Major the most League. probably one of the most quotable movies mm-hmm. ever. Yes. You know, you can't go to a ball game without somebody going too high, too high. Yeah. You know? yeah. just um, a bit outside, right? Yeah. Um, but yeah, so I mean, Fever Pitch, I think for what it's trying to do, it does well and it's enjoyable. It's harmless, you know, um, and, and if you like the Red Sox, you get to see the Red Sox in it. So what's, not, you know, yeah. so I have no complaints about Fever Pitch. It's fine. That's a very diplomatic answer. It's I harmless. It. Yep. I like that. It's harmless. <laughs> it's fine. It's harmless. I think to me, it goes back to what you said before about Fast and Furious. It's, of course, it's ridiculous, but it's, they know what they're doing and it is well, very well executed ridiculousness. Yes. Um, mm-hmm. Fever pitch is just mediocrely executed. It's fine. Right. Yeah. It's, 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 harmless. Harmless. It's, a, it's an ordinary rom-com. I mean, it yeah. doesn't break any yeah. of the patterns, you know, it, and in fact, had the Red Sox not actually won in 2004, it would have had a different ending and that would have focused much more on the relationship, but they had to yeah. incorporate right. the fact that the movie undid their whole theme, you yes. know, or, I'm sorry, that real, that the real life uh, undid their whole yes. movie. So yeah. Yeah. Like change the ending. Yeah. Yeah. In reading the book, Mark, the one thing that stuck out to me is you can't be afraid to ask questions and you can't be afraid to just go deeper and keep asking questions. Like, because we were talking about before, there's always more. Right. Um, the first place that I ever saw anyone in any sort of faith based book write, write that, say that before, is um, a guy named Rob Bell. And I was wondering if you had ever read any of his books. I have. Um, I, I like Rob Bell a lot. Um, okay. I read Velvet Elvis about 20 years, 15 years ago, something like that, and changed how I looked at a lot of things. Yeah. In fact, I, Rob Bell has this wonderful, um, I don't know if it's quite a movie, but it's a video called everything is spiritual. And it's, yes. it, and, and I, you know, I resonate with that very, very powerfully. I, I actually had a chance to see him here in DC with another, um, author who I really like named Peter Rollins, who mm-hmm. shows up in the book fair amount too. Um, and yeah, they're both of a mind that is this, very engaged kind of spirituality, but but looking at it in a new and exciting way, almost in a in a in the literal definition of radical, right? Getting back to the roots and kind of um, re-examining all these accumulated things we've assumed to be true, and and diving deeper. So yeah, I like Rob Bell a lot. Um, yeah, and I think uh, you know he and folks like Peter Rollins are out there kind of pushing uh, religion in a really good direction. Um, and of course, you know they're also 
upsetting a lot of people because, you know, yeah. they're challenging some of their orthodoxies and established uh, things. But I, I appreciate the fearlessness with which they do those things, you know, when that's yes, totally, you know, and because I think if faith isn't about fearlessness, then what is it about? Like, what is it even mm-hmm. for? Right. That's the whole point. Right. It's why every time you know, angels show up, the first thing they say is, don't be afraid, right? Yeah. <laughs> yes. Right. I mean, part of that is because angels are terrifying. If you actually, like, look into what they're supposed to look like, they're there terrifying <laughs> creatures. But, um, yeah, so this whole, like, long-haired blonde women with wings, that's not really, you know, biblical. No, but, no, no. Um, but, yeah, the first thing these, you know, fiery-winged serpents say when they shout from the skies is, <laughs> don't be afraid. And I think that that is the whole point of what faith is, right? I mean, it's it comes back to that Adama thing. I don't know, but that's what this is. Like, we'll go ahead anyway. We'll give it a shot. So Absolutely. I appreciate those folks who are willing to say, maybe we've been looking at this wrong, or maybe there's a different way of looking at our faith that brings a deeper understanding rather than the ones who are just doubling down on centuries of orthodoxy and saying, nope, that's it. That's the end. That's what religion is. Mm-hmm. Cool. Yep. Very cool. Okay. So as you may or may not know, it seems like it's been a rite of passage now with every guest and pretty much every episode that we talk about food. Okay. And people like to eat. People like to eat. People like to tell us and tell share with everyone what kind of foods they like. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's okay. the other part of it. Yeah. People like to eat and people have opinions. Yes, that's, people have right. opinions. And so... Those are two certainties right there. Uh, yes. <laughs> ah, I think we've ruined the, the, the book. Yeah. Um, okay, so we always seem to ask our guests their opinions on Oreos. Okay. And, and also, I'll ask you two questions. One... Oreos, what's your opinion? Are you an Oreo purist? Are you an Oreo hater? Do you are a, are you a combination Oreo lover? Where do you fall on that Oreo spectrum? And then um, the second question is about Thanksgiving. Since we just okay. had Thanksgiving, your favorite Thanksgiving dish. Okay, I'm not sure that I was generally aware there was an Oreo spectrum. I think <laughs> Oh yes. <laughs> okay. Well, um I like Oreos. I like the double stuff Oreos. Although Ooh, yeah. it's uh, although uh, one of my students pointed out to me a couple of years ago, they're double stoof Oreos. There's only one F in double right. stuff. There you go. I, I, don't, I, I don't know how I, I, you know, so decades of my life, I never noticed that. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> but I like the double stoof Oreos as well. And, you know, I tend to eat them three at a time. I, I don't know what that's about, but like when we've got like a sleeve of them around somewhere, I'll grab three and eat those. So three's a good I'm, number. Three, like yeah. okay. So an odd number. Yeah. Do you yeah. eat them? whole do you dip them or do you unscrew them and eat the cream the correct way eat them whole sorry oh, okay. yeah no that's all yeah. right although when i was a kid uh we made our own double stoofs by unscrewing them and then putting two of them together whichever side had more of oh, the yes. cream on it we put them together and made our own double stuffs yeah <laughs> and so you're not a dunker a no. dipper okay no I saw this, but I but I don't have any strong opinions about people who are. So you know, I I don't judge. You know, eat and let eat. Yes. Yeah. There you go. I love it. I think. Well, I have strong opinions <laughs> about food. <laughs> I I think I'll say that I think the reason why they call they put just the one F on there and called it stoof, as you said, is because um, it's technically not real, so they can't call it stuff, which is a real thing. <laughs> it's maybe some legal thing that they're trying to avoid. That could be. That could be. Yeah, it's not I real would, food, right? Right, because stuff has some legal definition somewhere in a in the yes. code. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> FDA. And 
stuffing's your favorite Thanksgiving dish, right? Um. So I, I, that's I, a leading question. <laughs> that is a leading, leading the question. witness, Your that's Honor. Right. Objection. That's but he's so good. Question. He's so good at diplomatic answers. I just had to go with that leading question. Okay. <laughs> I, I I'm not going to deny the appeal of stuffing. I mean, stuffing is always the one leftover dish that disappears first. Yes. Like, of what, you know, mm-hmm. when subsequent leftover meals, it's always the stuffing that's gone first. Mm-hmm. But that may also be because we make a a, a ton of potatoes, and so. Um, because I really like the mashed potatoes, and we make yes. them with the skins oh, on. Yeah. So, um, so it's that's tough, you know. I mean, because actually, what about the Thanksgiving meal is not enjoyable? Like, which course in that meal is not meant to be enjoyed fully? I I don't know. It's an entire meal full of comfort foods. Oh yes, it's 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 like the perfect meal. So you know, the I mean, the turkey, the the stuffing, the potatoes. Uh, even the squash, the cranberry sauce in a can, not the real kind, and in a can, uh, you okay. know, <laughs> yeah, the canned cranberry sauce, the the kind that comes with the ridges still imprinted into the yes, side. When yeah. You, yeah, that's the that's the kind we like. Um, yes. And um, yeah. And then, you know, you've got pie for dessert or mm-hmm. cheesecake or something. So I, I, I don't know that I don't know that there's a you know, weak spot in that lineup, honestly. Ah, Fair enough. I like that yeah. answer. That's good. Definitely. Um, well, Mark, thanks so much for joining us. Um, and again, yes. I already said this, but I'll say it again. I really enjoyed your book. I th- found it thought provoking. I found it challenging and I won't go too personal, but you know, it made me think about some things and helped me make some decisions, I think, about my own life. So I can honestly recommend this book. And I hope, Thank you. I hope the book is wildly successful. I, I hope it's a real flambouli. Is that the word? <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> yeah. So tell everyone where they can buy the book, how and how they can find you on social media, that kind of thing. Plug sure. yourself. Okay. So the book is available at Amazon. Um, it is The Certainty of Uncertainty. Um, you can purchase it in uh, paperback, hardcover, Audible, and Kindle formats. You can also buy it from the publisher. The publisher is Whip and Stock, but you can find all of this information at the website, certaintyofuncertainty.com. There's a link to buy the book. There are excerpts of the book. There are reviews um, that are up there. So you can learn all kinds of information. Um, we also are on Facebook at uh, facebook.com, I think the certainty of uncertainty, and also Twitter, which is at cert of uncert, because um, we only get so many letters in a Twitter handle, I guess. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. But, um, and then you can follow me at Rev Shafe, that's R E V S C H A E F. That's my pro- sort of professional Twitter account, um, in which I tend to link to the book more often through that. Um, and so, yeah, and it's also available at some. Uh, um, bookstores here in DC. Um, for those of uh, you who are in the DC area, um, at Politics and Prose and at Kramer Books, um, and available, you know, as I said, um, through a lot of online resellers. Very Excellent. great. Um, thank you for coming on. And I can see why you're always a member of that winning team on <laughs> Trivia Night at Kornheiser's Restaurant Chatter, and probably any other trivia you you are a part of. At least, you know, in the top three, I, you I, know, like, so. But yeah, KJ, at some point we got to get there and join them. Oh, yeah. Uh, no, well, maybe you, Jason. I don't think anybody's clamoring for me to be on their trivia team, <laughs> but I'd still like to play if you'll well, have I mean, me. The, the great thing about what good trivia is, is that good trivia should be something you can reason out, right? Like yes. bad trivia yeah. is, you know, what color hammer is, you know, 
um, Zelda carrying on level five of you know whatever game. It's like that's not a trivia question. Right. That's an obscure. It, can, it can't be question. things you either know or you don't know, and there's no chance of getting it otherwise. Right. Yeah. Right. Or, but do so, we really know anything? That's right. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> that you should write that down for every answer. Every answer. Think yes. Like, exactly. I, ab- I object to the premise that this is the thing that can be known. Yeah. Yes. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> oh, fantastic. That's a good place to end. Thank you very much, Mark. Thanks so much, KJ Jason. I really appreciate the invite, and uh, I'm really happy to have joined you. Oh, man. Great talking with you. Thanks. Yep. Take care. Bye bye. Bye. Hey, big thanks again to Dan for taking time to join us today. And thanks to you for listening. If you'd like to send us feedback about this episode or any other episode, actually, I mean, I was going to say if you're like behind on the episodes, you want to send us feedback about those, that would be cool too. But if you're behind on the episodes and you haven't gotten to this one yet, so, I mean, unless you're a time traveler. So, I mean, yeah. So, if you're behind on the episodes, you can send us feedback about any episode. We may not remember anything we said, especially me, but we'll read your feedback, possibly. I mean, we'll read it. I, we may not read it on the episode. We may not read it on a future episode episode of when we're recording this podcast but when we record it in the future we'd be actually recording in the present for the present version of us anyway at speak tangents on twitter or speaking of tangents podcast at gmail.com we'd love to hear from you about whatever whenever do we have any feedback well yes we do have feedback um, first, I'll read a few tweets from Brad Weiss's fireside chat, our bonus episode last week. Wait a minute. I thought that was supposed to go directly to him. I thought I was pretty clear about that. The feedback should go to him, and he was going to answer that. Well, yeah, I, you I mean, were clear about that. Yeah. People um, just don't listen. No. So, Cool Aunt Claire at Cool Aunt Claire loved the latest Speaking of Tangents podcast with Brad Weiss at regaling us with a Christmas memory. I smell the makings of a holiday tradition unlike any other. All I'm missing are the crackling fire and snifter of Bailey's. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, you know, I was tempted to put an actual like fireplace sound underneath the entire thing. <laughs> so well, next she said time, that's all that was missing. <laughs> yeah, so I, that confirms that I should have done what I thought I should have done. <laughs> so uh, once again, I was right. Yes, right. Um, Ed Butt at EDB 1947. And he did, he did direct this to Brad Weiss. So he listened to you at one Brad Weiss. Loved your fireside chat. Well, on should we speaking be reading other tangents. people's emails or mail or? Well, we're tagged in it. So it's fair. Oh, game. okay. It was on Twitter. Twitter. Yeah. Okay. Loved your fireside chat on speaking of tangents, touching holiday story. And from Patrick Moffat at Moffat Patrick, he sent it to both of us. Speaking of tangents and Brad Weiss, a hank of rope. I was unfamiliar go. with this term. Thanks for the educating, Professor. Yes. <laughs> That's a great, great, great way to describe a length or a section or a piece of something. Yes, I agree. Um, okay, now here's some feedback from our episode before Brad, the Thanksgiving episode. You know, the one where we talked about all the food. That one. That one episode where we talked about all the food. Okay, was this the one uh, the week before Thanksgiving? Yes. Okay. The map. and, and uh, oh, Yeah, the map. How could I forget that? Uh-huh. Dr. Garrett Schumann at G-A-R-R-T. Quote, 
I think bread is pretty much a staple food all the time, end quote. Judofuse, this is the kind of incisive social commentary. Oh, so he's saying Judof, that's, he's quoting you. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You said that. And then he yes. said, this is the kind of incisive sh- social commentary I depend on from speaking of tangents. Yes, of course. Because <laughs> what I was doing was responding to your statement that <laughs> bread is a staple food of Thanksgiving. And I was uh-huh. like, I mean, yeah. bread is a staple food of everything. Yeah. It's of any time, any, anywhere. That's true. Which I both agree with and abide by. And I agree with it, but I don't abide by it. But not because I don't want to. Um, Jolene Wojcik at J-M-R-W-O-J-C-I-K. Since I was called out, winky face emoji, I also have a problem (laughs) with the research. Most often research recipes in November on Betty Crocker, Pillsbury, and Tablespoon.com? Question mark, question mark, exclamation point, slapping the face of... You're slapping the palm into your face emoji. And then she says, <laughs> actually, it has nothing to That's... do with Thanksgiving. Okay. The, my first comment is everybody who sends us feedback on Twitter, please, please, please send multiple emojis so that we can try to describe them <laughs> yes. out loud on yes. a podcast. Um, and then she says, actually, it has nothing to do with Thanksgiving. But another reason for Jason to visit Nebraska, monkey yeah. bread. I agree with all this. I would love to visit Nebraska. I think monkey bread sounds delicious. And I agree that that research, quote unquote research, I'm doing my fingers in the air. I'm describing emojis. I'm, Uh or, you know, I'm doing my fingers in there. Dinosaur claws, as we like to call them. Okay. Um, That research was ridiculous. Uh huh. And that that was the whole point of what we were doing Uh in that segment. Yeah. Now, I will say, describing the emojis, I have this uh, in my new car. It took us about three weeks to even. Um, figure this out. But if you plug in the iPhone, mm-hmm. I was just plugging it in one day to charge it, and it said Apple CarPlay. So I clicked on that, and then it hooks up to your car, to your Apple mm-hmm. phone. And so when a text message comes in, it will re- Siri will read it to you. Oh yeah. And I've not, I didn't know that, so that was pretty exciting. But the when the um. When they come in, she reads the emojis. Nice. And so she, of course, I told you that Siri's in a British accent, which I won't try to, I won't try to do that right now because it's not good. But she would, she does that. She says, winky face emoji. And then she, one of them, oh, she, one of them was squinty eye, squinty eye, head turned sideways emoji. <laughs> which one so, is that? Um, I think it's the, well, it's the squinty eye, head turned sideways emoji. But what does that indicate? I don't know if I've used That's that. That's like a, you know, laughter, um, silly laughter. I think. Oh well, then it. Look, she should know better than that. She should know that that's rolling on the floor laughing. She did that one too. This mm. must be a different one. Rolling on the floor. She said, "Rolling on the floor, laughing emoji. Rolling on the floor, laughing emoji. Rolling on the floor because the person did three in a row." <laughs> Somebody was trying to put out a fire. Is what they were trying to do. Yeah. So. It, they weren't laughing. The first time we heard that in the car, it was pretty funny. Yeah, that's pretty good. Um, okay, so Simeon Copeland at the Schmooze says, I know no one asked, especially not Jason, but here's my fop fot. <sighs> <laughs> but here's my top five casseroles. Squash, corn, broccoli, sweet potato, no marshmallows, green bean. Hashtag Thanksgiving. Now, he doesn't, is that a ranking? Is squash number one? I don't know. 
I don't think sweet potato I think it's casserole. Unranked. I think it's just in any particular order. Okay. The only ones that I would want on this list are sweet potato and green bean. And no marshmallows, I agree, Simeon. We had sweet potato casserole here. It was delicious. We did not have green bean casserole. Okay, I have a few questions. Okay. Because I really don't know. Um, corn casserole. Is that like a corn souffle, which I've had before, which is actually not a casserole. It's just corn cooked in a different, like, it's like deep dish corn. I do not know. I've never, I don't think I've had corn casserole. Corn souffle is good. I don't so know I don't know. I, I don't either. know where the demarcation is between souffle and casserole in that. I don't area. know either. Um, sweet potato casserole without the marshmallows isn't that just sweet potatoes? Yeah, sweet potatoes, and then it depends That's on what you put in there. That's not a casserole to me. Oh yeah. yeah. Green bean casserole is what green beans and what else like? And then you put those breadcrumbs. I think it's fr- fried onions, French onions, yeah. fried onions. Yeah, I could do without the onions. And, see, and cream of mushroom soup, I think, is in there. It's, it's very good. This is, this is casserole trying to extend its reign where it doesn't belong. It's, it's <laughs> overstepping its bounds. The word casserole needs to, you know, check itself before it wrecks itself. Because it's getting a little too, you know, forward in its thinking. It's trying to take over everything. Some of these are not casseroles. A true casserole has, like, meat and vegetables and... Yeah. All kinds of soups and, you know, thick stuff and gooey stuff and gross stuff all mixed together and baked with like a crust over the top of it. That's a casserole to me. So when I say casseroles got to go, that's what I'm talking about. Like old school 70s casseroles, which is what I grew up eating, which is why I cannot stand them because that's felt like we had that for dinner, you know, three times a week. Yeah. And I want to shout out to my mom and say, uh-uh, that's bad. <laughs> She wasn't but a bad cook, but that accuse, choice of food was terrible. Did you ever accuse her of, you know, bringing mice into your home or stealing no. your bananas? Okay. No, because I'm not a crazy person. Yeah. But what I did do one time, though, is I was eating the casserole. It was some sort of, you know, chicken casserole. It had chicken and, you know, soup and vegetables like corn and beans and stuff in it, like with breaded over the top. Mm-hmm. I was eating it because my dad was like, you're going to sit there and eat this. I was like probably 10 years old. And I got so sick eating it that I went and threw up. And he said, no, nah, you ain't done yet. There's still some left on your plate. And I had to come back down and sit and eat the rest of it after I threw up. Oh, well, no wonder you don't like casseroles. So there you go. Don't come at me experience. with casseroles anymore. My mind is not changing. Sweet potato casserole. Really, uh, my mom made that one. And it's really just sweet potatoes mashed up, mm-hmm. butter, and yeah. then the topping, the crust, yeah. which yeah, is fan. Fantastic. And it might not be a casserole. I don't care what you call it. I'm eating it. You can call yeah, it whatever call you want. Casserole. I'm going to eat yeah, it, though. I, I agree with Simeon. I like a lot of these things. Squash, I'm not into because I don't like squash. Broccoli, I'd rather just eat the broccoli. But I can eat. I've eaten like a broccoli. That's more like a soup kind of with broccoli in it. Um, sweet potatoes, I wouldn't call that a casserole. Green bean, I could do without the onions. But yeah, this is a mm-hmm. good list. Mm-hmm. The casseroles and- I'm talking about are the evil casseroles. Yeah, like sweet potato. I mean, sweet uh, tater tot casserole, which is huge in this state that I live in. Is that just tater tots mashed up in a? I think there's meat in there. I think I think there must be some sort of soup. I don't know. I don't. I don't care for it, and I don't actually. I shouldn't say I don't care for it. I don't even know if I've had it. It doesn't appeal to me. I ain't eating it. The squash. I don't know what his squash casserole is, but. Sometimes when sweet potatoes aren't available, my mom will put squash in that same thing, and it's good, too. Yeah, I... Hmm. 
Now, the corn, maybe there is meat in the corn casserole. Maybe. And maybe there's some sort of mushroom soup or something. Yeah, see, that's what what you got to get out of here with cream of chicken, cream of mushroom soup in a pan with bread and meat and vegetables. I don't know. It's really good in those green bean casseroles. It's like if you took a soup, like a chunky soup, and baked it in a pan with bread. (laughs) I just can't. I can't do it. Okay. Well, that's fair enough. Um, okay, Kim Wilson at Kim Wills 33. I want it on the record, speaking of tangents, that no one in my family, immediate or extended, has ever served chili for Thanksgiving. <laughs> Fake news! Also, buffalo chicken dip is delicious and is kind of like artichoke dip with shredded chicken and buffalo sauce. Mm. And we did this get a few l- pictures of buffalo chicken dip tweeted to us, and that is what I remember it as, and I do find it delicious. This is all from the map. Right. This is all from the map. Because they said Michigan. Michigan, Chile. Yeah, right. Yeah. That's ridiculous. Uh Uh-huh. I'm with Kim on this. That map is ridiculous. Yep, it is. Okay. And we, you know, speaking of Brad Weiss earlier in this feedback section, and food for that matter, Brad Weiss, at one Brad Weiss, tweeted us something from popsugar.com. And he said, the cherry cola flavored one only plays dogs barking jingle bells, so... And he was referring to an Oreo music box from, mm-hmm. I guess, Amazon. I mean, you can order it from anywhere. He linked it from Amazon. He linked it yeah. from... Or he, the, the, the article that he linked, linked to it on Amazon. Yep. And this is a record player, an actual record player, but not a record player, an Oreo <laughs> yeah, cookie actual, player. <laughs> that's a loose definition. Yeah. You put a cookie, an Oreo cookie on the turntable where a record mm-hmm. would go and it plays... I looked it up. It plays one of four tunes, or you can record your own thing. Right. And when you take a cook, when you take a bite out of the cookie and put it back on the record player, I presume, then it changes songs. Right. Um, so. Yes. This is, I will say, a good use of Oreo marketing. Better than, com- at least they're not combining flavors, in, you know, anymore. At least they've stepped off of that yeah. for a second to do this other thing. Well, they. But you understand ahead. this is ridiculous, right? It's absolutely ridiculous. This is not real. Well, it is real. It's a, it's a thing that exists. It's not, it's not a real record player. I can't be certain, but I think it exists. I can be certain that it exists. <laughs> okay, as right. much as you can be certain About as anything, anything that you can hold in your hand exists. Because I have held this in my hand. You've held the Oreo record player in your hand? I have one of these things, yes. Okay, so tell me more about it. Does it actually... Did you record your own? Uh, no, you, it's, it's built in. It's, everything is... You don't need the cookie. It's built into this thing. It's a, it's a, it's a press a button and it plays a song. That's what it is. Okay, so it doesn't... But the, I mean, the thing turns, but it's just... It's ridiculous. What it's, happens if you play the Oreo backwards? Nothing. Oh, you can't. It's There's not, no subliminal messages. It's or not playing it off the Oreo. The subliminal message is you haven't thought this through if you think this is real. <laughs> That's what I'm saying. <laughs> okay, all right. Um, well, they do include, don't they include several different flavors when you order or purchase this thing? Uh, yeah, I got some thins and white fudge covered Oreos and some regular Oreos. Now, eh, did, maybe a double stuff. I didn't look at the bottom. It's a, it's a no, big thing. It's a lot of Oreos. Stoof. Double stuff. Sorry, stoof, yeah. So did you order this after you became aware of it from Brad Weiss, or had you been aware of this previous to Brad oh, Weiss? Oh, I ordered it from the link. That's very awesome. <laughs> yes, because I was like, okay, I got to see this thing. And I want to support when they do things that are interesting and not, you know, cherry cola flavored Oreos uh, based on a contest. 
I can't. I still can't believe that one. I know. That well, actually, Brent, I do believe that one because it was based on people voting, and that woman yeah. was. Um, how can I say this? Um, Enthusiastic. Relentless. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. The Brad said the cherry. Have you tried this yet? He said the cherry cola plays darking bark dogs barking jingle bells. <laughs> uh, that was that's funny, but uh, no, because I will never pay money for cherry, cherry cola, cola flavored Oreos. <laughs> I've eaten two because somebody else paid money for them. Yes. And it was almost like a, I took it as a dare. Uh-huh. Basically, is the reason I ate it. Babish bought some for us. Uh huh. Yep. Uh, I didn't. I didn't care for it. The cherry. Oh cola. no. Yeah. Oh, it's like vomit in your mouth. <laughs> uh, I yeah. I don't. I don't remember. I mean, exactly where else would vomit come out of? But I mean, yeah. I I just remember it not being good. I don't remember. There were so many that I tried that I can't discern which. I th- they were all not so good. Oh, it it just becomes like garbage at some point. Yes. Like you go to the landfill where you smell certain things, but then just like you, it's just this general awful smell of garbage just kind of overwhelms you and you don't smell individual smells anymore. That's yeah. these Oreos. Yep. They're all terrible in their own way. And if you had them on their own, you'd be like, oh, this stinks. This is terrible. This tastes bad. But then when you get them all, when we had them in that room that one time uh-huh. uh, last last summer, it was yeah. just like it just became where... Yeah, I, my taste buds have been burned off. I cannot, I've been napalmed in my mouth. I can't take this anymore. <laughs> I can't discern any difference between, you know, this cherry cola one and this birthday cake one and this whatever other junk they have out there. Uh, the exception is mint, but that's, we've been there before. We've done that. And yeah, see, I don't want, I don't want toothpaste in my Oreos. <laughs> yeah, I'm well, you, I can see how some people might think that. Okay, so that's all the feedback, but we have to give a huge shout out to Quizmaster Bob Walsh, whose daughter Fiona yes. was recently in uh, a scene in one of the Hallmark Christmas movies, right? Yes. Christmas on Honeysuckle Lane on the Hallmark Movies and Mystery Channel, which he later clarified is a subset of the Hallmark Movie Channel. They have a secondary channel. He said it's like the ESPN2 of the Hallmark Channel, which is funny. Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> I was not but aware yeah, of that. She's in the movie with, um, he tweeted a picture. Yes. And in the picture, I recognized um, the one actress, uh, Alicia, I think her name is Alicia Witt, maybe. Isn't okay. that her name? Okay, I don't know who that is. The redheaded woman. I've seen her in like one or two other like smaller things. And then Jason's wife recognized the other actress okay. in the movie. Well, the I'll other have stars, to look so. more closely at the photo. I just kind of was looking at Fiona in the picture. Yeah. And she's and, with them. And then, like, I think he tweeted out a picture of her, like, from the actual scene, like, yes, on the TV. Yes, from the TV. Yeah. Yeah. Which is Very cool. exciting. And I do want to know, is this the same daughter that Bob had posed with a pack of Oreos in her prom dress for us? You know, it might be. Yeah. And if so, she was famous for this. So That's this right. Is just, you know, this is, this is small school. This That's is, what this I'm is saying. Little, yeah. little, little business. But, yeah, I actually don't get, I was going to watch this, but I do not get the... I get the Hallmark Channel. I don't get the movies and mystery version of it. So no, I have I to live either. vicariously through Bob's tweets. So Yes, but congratulations. That's awesome. Yeah, maybe if he can get a video clip, he can send us a, like, post it on Twitter of the scene. Yeah. Because I think it's in the party scene, the still image he had. And it's like the main actress in there with her. So, I mean, she's, she's on camera. I don't know if she had any lines, but she could at least say watermelon or peas and carrots in the background. Yeah. Yes, right. <laughs> yeah. That's awesome, though. That's really cool. Yeah, very cool. Uh, anything else? Uh, I think that's... I'm good. Uh, yeah, Michigan Tech's season's over. Oh, um, yes, that's right. You have any uh, Hall of Fame corrections for this week? 
I think there was one related to my definition of buffalo chicken dip, but I can't even <laughs> remember what it was. Just Well, that's just teeing it up for next week right <laughs> yeah, there. Yeah, exactly. Okay. <laughs> right. You have anything else? No, that'll do it. All right, bye. Bye. Speaking of Tangents is brought to you by KJ Onsted and Jason Fuse. Hosted by Jason Fuse and KJ Onsted. Created by KJ Onsted and Jason Fuse. Music written and performed by Jason Fuse. Lyrics and vocals by KJ Onsted and Jason Fuse. Edited by Jason Fuse. And speaking of Amazon, uh, for those of you who miss our Amazon review readings, I found this one about the Oreo cookie record player thingy that we talked about earlier. And seriously, I did not make this review up. It's an actual review written by Liam Cooper, who gives it four out of five stars with the title, What Did You Expect? November 20th, 2018. Can't go wrong with Oreos, but with the cookie as the record, expect crummy sound. Graphics by Jason Fuse. I love snow peas. And I love you. Bye-bye.